Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Belgium is the first country to implement a mandatory quarantine for people who contract monkeypox. The World Health Organization says the virus is spreading primarily among homosexual men. And we're seeing cases, as you say, among um, men who um, identify as gay. Former Congressman Devin Nunes shares his thoughts on the Michael Sussman trial and what he considers the biggest revelation so far. And the question is, is, you know, will a jury believe it? The Army National Guard and its military police monitoring school board meetings. That's what the National Schools Board Association was planning to request. An independent review reveals the drastic measures the association considered requesting from the White House. Where's the U.S. economy headed? And is a recession looming? President Biden says we'll bounce back. We have problems that the rest of the world has, but less consequential than the rest of the world has them because of our internal growth and strength. And the president reiterated the United States' commitment to Taiwan. Biden says the U.S. will stand with other nations to prevent an attack from China. The number of monkeypox cases is on the rise. Belgium is the first country to implement a mandatory quarantine for people who contract the virus. Belgian health officials say they're especially concerned about the spread among homosexual males. And the WHO today confirmed the virus is transmitted primarily via sex between men. And a warning, some of the following footage contains graphic images of the disease. People who contract monkeypox in Belgium now have to self-isolate for 21 days. The WHO reports there were one to five new cases in Belgium last week. The United States also had one to five confirmed cases. Officials in Belgium and the UK said that it appears a significant portion of the virus's transmission is among homosexual males. Um, we're seeing cases, as you say, among um, men who um, identify as gay, bisexual, or from other groups of men who have sex with men um, in several countries. Dr. Peter McCullough is an epidemiologist and host of the McCullough Report podcast. He told NTD that monkeypox should be easy to contain if homosexual men and people in general avoid certain things. Just not having close facial contact, kissing, or touching the pustular lesions. I think it's going to be easier, honestly, than HIV or SARS-CoV-2, where it was less clear who had the illness. Here with monkeypox, you know, we know who's sick and who has it. It's pretty obvious. Last week, the United States ordered 13 million monkeypox vaccines. Is this the right step at this time? I think it's a hyperbolic overreaction. We already have an approved therapy. We actually already have a commercialized therapy uh, orally, and the IV was just approved uh, three days ago. Again, uh, the timing is uh, prescient. Uh, but since we have uh, a ther therapy, large number of people already have residual protection from the smallpox vaccine, uh, I, I wouldn't see any role for a new vaccine program, uh, particularly when we don't have long-term outcomes. He added that the government already has a medication called T-pox, which should be made available to pharmacies and doctors. The second week of the Michael Sussman trial began today. NTD's Arlene Richards spoke to former Congressman Devin Nunes to get his thoughts on the trial. The prosecution called a number of witnesses in the first week of the Michael Sussman trial. Some unexpected testimony has revealed Hillary Clinton's personal involvement in the discredited Russia collusion narrative. Sussman is charged with making a false statement to the FBI. CEO of Trump Media and Technology Group, Devin Nunes, gave me his take on the trial so far. Well, I think the overwhelming evidence shows that Sussman did exactly what Durham has accused him of in the indictment, which is that he, he purposely went to the FBI claiming that he was just going on his own, not on behalf of any, anyone. And the question is, is, you know, will a jury believe it? Uh, in the grand scheme of the whole Russiagate saga, this is just only one small little piece, little sliver of that. And But it, what the one thing it, it is having an effect is it is finally getting out to the American people, you know, the full involvement of the Clinton campaign and the DNC. And probably the biggest revelation last week was the campaign advisor or top campaign strategist and manager 
admitting that Clinton did know about uh, the taking this information out and leaking it to the on purpose to the media. I asked Nunes if he was concerned that the prosecution may be painting the FBI as victims in order to prove its case against Sussman. I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, this is a very specific case dealing with a with just one small. If you if you took the whole RussiaGate scandal in total, uh, you know this is you know less than just a, a small micro percentage of the entire scandal. Uh, but it is very specific in that. This is somebody they have direct evidence on that definitely misled and lied to the FBI. So it is, you know, it has been a good way for Durham. Uh, the question is, is can you, you know, bring a charge of, of conspiracy against these, against all these people that knew about this? And I think this is just one small step in a long, long process that Durham has to, to, to go through to bring justice to this whole situation. He thinks the indictment of Russian Igor Dechenko is more crucial. This is the person, the avatar, so to speak, that they use to justify the entire hoax, uh, the entire issue that supposedly Trump and, and Republicans had ties to, to Russians. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. An independent review of the National School Boards Association has revealed drastic measures it considered requesting from the White House. Those measures included deploying the Army National Guard to monitor school board meetings. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. The National School Boards Association initially planned to call for the Army National Guard and the military police to be deployed for the purpose of monitoring school board meetings. This was revealed in a new report from an independent review of the association. In a draft letter to the White House, the NSBA wrote, We ask that the Army National Guard and its military police be deployed to certain school districts and related events where students and school personnel have been subjected to acts and threats of violence. In the final letter sent to President Joe Biden in September 2021, the NSBA requested that parents' actions should be examined under the Patriot Act as domestic terrorists. This sparked widespread outrage from parents nationwide and caused multiple state school board associations to withdraw their NSBA membership. Since October 2021, over 20 have withdrawn. Numerous parents and parent groups have said that NSBA mischaracterized parents' actions and denied that there were any threats of violence made against school board members. In addition, they've said that they think that NSBA's letter to Biden was an attempt to intimidate and silence parents. The most heated school board meetings have been over pandemic policies such as mask mandates, critical race theory curricula, and sexually explicit teaching materials. Grace Coulter, NTD News. When confronted with a moral dilemma, where do you turn? Some turn to their faith in times of need. And sometimes you might turn to politicians to help make things right. But what if you'd like to turn to both and they're heading in different directions? Some Catholics may be asking the same question this week after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Friday was banned from receiving communion in San Francisco over her support for abortion access while publicly identifying as a Catholic. I spoke with Abby Johnson, former director at Planned Parenthood and now a Catholic convert, to understand how the Archbishop's move could shift the dial for people of faith in America. Abby, welcome. San Francisco's Archbishop made a big call last week, banning House Speaker Pelosi from communion. Why do you support his decision? Well, I mean, as a, as a Catholic, um, I feel like this has been a, a long time coming and something that's, that's very overdue. Um, there are just some, some core tenets of our faith as Catholics that, that we adhere to, and the sanctity of human life is, is one of those things. And Nancy Pelosi, among other uh, other politicians, have you know they've gone around for years saying that they are Catholic. They have said that they have that they are devout Catholics, and yet they support abortion, and they are pushing abortion legislation. And those two things they they cannot uh, abide together. Our bishops, our clergy, they their hope is that people will work these things out on their own, right? I think that people, you know, our, our clergy, they hope that, you know, in our hearts and, and with the help of God and, and through prayer that, um, and maybe even through some public pressure, right? That, um, 
that people will, you know, in their own heart and, and, and through the help of Christ, that we'll sort of work this out on our own and that we'll come to the realization that, you know what, this is wrong. And I, I shouldn't be, you know, publicly saying these things or that I, you know, I will have a conversion of sorts like I did, right? That, that abortion is, is wrong and that I will come to that knowledge through my own private revelation. But there comes a time when, if that doesn't happen, if this person is not willing to privately meet with their bishop or whatever, which apparently Nancy Pelosi was not willing to meet with the archbishop, that public steps have to be taken. And that's exactly what Archbishop Cordelion did. And it was completely proper in, in the way that he did it. And I think it, it sets an example to, to other Catholics that she may be leading astray. You know, there, there could be other Catholics looking to her saying, well, Nancy Pelosi is for abortion and she's Catholic, so it must be okay. But in the reality, it is not okay. And it goes against Catholicism. It goes against the heart of God, more importantly. And so the archbishop needed to finally make that very clear, um, not only for her own soul, but for the soul of others that he has been called to protect. And so how do you think the archbishop's decision could benefit Catholics and their faith? Well, I think it's a, a huge benefit because I think it's a, a wake-up call um, to Catholics that might have been on the fence about, you know, well, maybe abortion's okay, or um, maybe I don't know how to feel about abortion, or uh, maybe I, I can be politically okay with abortion, but personally not okay with abortion. He has made it, you know, crystal clear that abortion is, is not acceptable, uh, you know, under any circumstance. And uh, I think that it was, it was completely the appropriate thing to do. And it, it also shows that, you know, when you are a public figure, you have a unique responsibility. And, you know, you have a responsibility, if you are going to say that, that you are a Catholic person, you have a unique responsibility to uphold the tenets of your faith and to uphold them well and to uphold the truth of your faith. And she has not been doing that. And so, uh, you know, I can only hope that more uh, clergy will react in, in the same way that the archbishop has. Abby Johnson, thank you. Thank you so much. Pelosi has not publicly commented on the Archbishop's action, and she didn't return our request for comment. But according to Politico, this morning she was seen receiving the Eucharist in Washington, D.C. In his letter, San Francisco's Archbishop wrote that Pelosi remains, quote, our sister in Christ, and also said her advocacy for the care of the poor and vulnerable elicits his admiration. And now to inflation, which has not slowed yet, leaving Americans to wonder where the economy is headed. President Biden today, when asked about the possibility of a recession, gave a positive outlook on the economy. And while some economists agree, others are not as optimistic. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. As Americans continue to pay more for gas and goods, a lingering question hangs overhead. How much longer will you have to cope with higher prices? Mark Hamrick, senior economic analyst at Bankrate, says probably a while longer. It's an open question whether inflation is or has peaked. There are some signs pointing to that. Given the fact that the outlook remains for inflation to remain persistently high for some time to come, we would look for those households to continue to struggle. Here's President Biden today acknowledging that the U.S. economy is facing obstacles and offering a positive outlook. We have problems that the rest of the world has, but less consequential than the rest of the world has them because of our internal growth and strength. The president downplayed the possibility of an economic recession, saying that a recession is not inevitable. But what are economists saying? Do you see signs that we're headed toward a recession right now? 
I think it's fair to say the risks of a recession have risen in recent months, but when you have the job market continuing as strong as it is and has been, uh, we don't see a horizon immediate, we do not see a recession immediately on the horizon. And one economist from Hillsdale College tells me when assessing the economy now, we should keep in mind the unprecedented challenges we faced over the past few years. The pandemic response, the lockdown, the economy, and the subsequent supply chain disruptions, those things are not normal. Uh, that's a, that's, those aren't normally figured into your standard economic models, so they have to be taken into account also. And similarly, shutting down energy production, energy production uh, affects every sector of the economy, basically. At present, there are no alternatives that could replace the fossil fuels that we use. Uh, so you're going to see prices going up, you're going to see output going down, that's the formula for a recession. Both economists tell me the best way for Americans to prepare for an uncertain economic outlook is to save money, invest in assets to maintain the value of your dollar, and quickly pay off debt to avoid the impact of the higher interest rates. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. President Biden announced his Indo-Pacific economic framework this morning. Observers call it an American attempt to counter China's considerable influence in Asia. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more on that. President Biden's in Tokyo launching a new Indo-Pacific economic framework as Washington tries to keep Beijing's influence in check. We share the same goal of ensuring a free and open Indo-Pacific that will deliver greater prosperity and greater opportunity for all of our children. The framework has 13 members, including the United States. Together, they represent 40% of global gross domestic product. The new group does not include China or Taiwan. Ahead of the launch, China's foreign minister accused the U.S. of trying to contain Beijing. In response, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters that other countries can join in the future. He said the group is not a security arrangement. It'll mostly deal with economic policies. The group will focus on four main economic pillars, connecting economies, including digitally, supply chain resilience, renewable energy, and tax and anti-corruption. Ahead of the announcement, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai said trading partners in the region were enthusiastic. I don't think anybody's economy is stronger because of COVID, right? Um, and uh, there is um, a, a pretty pervasive sense of anxiety about um, uh, how we recover. I actually think that this presents us with an incredible opportunity. Back in 2017, the Trump administration pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Then China magnified its influence in the region with the largest trade bloc in history. Catherine Tai says the U.S. is focused on competition with China and bringing a market-based approach to the region. The United States will always bring an economic engagement that is grounded in our values. So uh, the engagement that we will bring um, by nature inherently will be different from China's engagement with the region. Seeking Alpha reports that the group is not a free trade deal. Instead, it's more of an economic arrangement. That means a lot of it likely won't have to go through Congress. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. President Biden said today his administration might remove some Trump-era trade tariffs on China. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen argues that the tariffs seem to cause more harm to Americans. Republican Senator Bill Haggerty disagrees. He told Fox Business removing the China trade tariffs would take away the only leverage the U.S. has to bring China to more normalized trade relations. And Biden today condemned any possible attack on Taiwan from China. He says the U.S. is committed to stand with other nations in preventing any attack from happening. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg brings us more. When President Biden was asked on Monday if he was willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan in the event of a possible attack, the president answered with a definitive, Yes. The president says it's the commitment that was made. The idea that, that it could be taken by force just taken by force is just not is just not appropriate. It will dislocate the entire region, and be another action similar to what happened in in uh, in Ukraine. However, White House officials have pointed out, after similar comments by the president in the past, that no changes have been made to U.S. policy in the region. A lot of it depends upon just how 
strongly, the world makes clear that that kind of action is going to result in long-term disapprobation by the rest of the community. The U.S. maintains a strategic ambiguity regarding military defense of Taiwan in the case of a Chinese attack. Biden criticized China and says his expectations are that a Chinese invasion of Taiwan will not happen or be attempted. They're already flirting with danger right now by flying so close and all the maneuvers they're undertaking. China's foreign ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin fired back on Biden's comments, saying China deplores and rejects the remarks from the U.S. Wang says the Taiwan issue is an internal affair with no room for compromise or concession, citing China's core interests on sovereignty and territorial integrity. The spokesperson urged the U.S. to abide by the One China Principle and warned against support of Taiwan's independence. The Chinese Communist Party's One China Principle is different from the One China policy abided to by the United States. The Chinese regime only recognizes its version, considering Taiwan part of its territory. While acknowledging China's stance, the U.S. does not recognize Taiwan as a part of China. U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price clarified the U.S. position in a Twitter post on Saturday. Price stated, China continues to publicly misrepresent U.S. policy and that the U.S. does not subscribe to the One China principle. Biden says the U.S. supports the One China policy but stands by past commitments. It does not mean that China has the ability, has the, excuse me, the, the jurisdiction to go in and use force to take over Taiwan. So we stand firmly with Japan and with other nations that, not to let that happen. Growing concerns about China have pushed Japan and other nations in the region to build up defensive capabilities. India, Korea, and the Philippines are doing the same. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, Florida launches a $100 million housing program to help critical workers buy their first home. All law enforcement officers, teachers, healthcare workers, and military members are eligible. And another tragedy in New York City. A banker on his way to brunch was shot dead on a subway train, reportedly by a stranger. That and more coming up on NTD News. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. States, Georgia, Alabama, Arkansas, and Texas will hold their primary elections on Tuesday. Let's take a look at the top candidates. In Georgia, Trump-endorsed former Senator David Perdue is challenging incumbent Governor Brian Kemp in the Republican gubernatorial primary. The winner will face Democrat Stacey Abrams, who lost against Kemp in a tight race back in 2018. In the GOP Senate primary race, Heisman Trophy winner Herschel Walker is ahead in the polls. He, too, was endorsed by former President Trump and is facing off against five opponents. Other Republican runner-ups include Gary Black, Kelvin King, and Latham Sadler. Over in the Democratic primary, incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock faces Tamara johnson Sheely. Georgia uses a majority electoral system, sometimes called a two-round system. In majority systems, a candidate has to receive at least 50% of votes to win the election. If no candidate wins by outright majority, a runoff election is held between the top two most voted for candidates. Georgia's primary runoff election is scheduled for June 21st if necessary. In Alabama, a Senate seat is vacant due to Republican Representative Richard Shelby's retirement. Leading the polls on the Republican side is Katie Britt, Shelby's former chief of staff and war veteran Michael Durant. Other candidates include Lily Bodie, Carla Dupriest, Jake Schaefer, and Mo Brooks. Former President Donald Trump endorsed Brooks at first, but has since retracted his support. Will Boyd, Brandon Dean, and Lanny Jackson are competing on the Democratic side. Alabama's primary runoff is also scheduled for June 21st, if it's needed. Arkansas has four candidates running in the Republican primary for U.S. Senate. Jake Paquette, Heath Loftus, Jan Morgan, and incumbent John Bozeman. Democratic candidates include Natalie James, Jack Foster, and Dan Whitfield. 
James is leading in the polls, but will face an uphill battle at the general election in November in a state with the reputation of being a Republican stronghold. If needed, a runoff will take place on June 21st. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, former Trump White House press secretary, is favored to win the Republican nomination for governor against Doc Washburn, while Chris Jones is expected to win the Democratic nomination. And in Texas, the runoff for the 28th Congressional District primary has Henry Quare, Democrat incumbent representative against progressive Jessica Cisneros. On the Republican side, Cassie Garcia will face Sandra Witten. The Republican nomination for Attorney General is between incumbent Ken Paxton and son of former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, Land Commissioner George P. Bush. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Florida is rolling out a housing program to help residents in 50 critical professions to buy their first home. Governor Ron DeSantis says this is to support hometown heroes that serve local communities. Here are the details. Uh, this is a $100 million program that will provide down payment and closing cost assistance to more than 50 different professions when buying their first homes. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced Monday that his state will launch the Hometown Heroes Housing Program on June 1st. The program covers people in 50 professions, including all law enforcement officers, firefighters, educators, healthcare professionals, childcare employees, and active military or veterans. So we want to make sure that, that those frontline uh, workers, people we, we consider to be hometown heroes, are able uh, to, to not only work and serve the community, but do so where they're able uh, to afford things like, like buying their first home. The governor says, our hometown heroes are the backbone of Florida communities, and making sure that they can afford to be homeowners is a great way to give back to them and support the future of the American dream. The program is administered by the Florida Housing and Finance Corporation. You're able to apply uh, to be uh, a home buyer, 5% or up to $25,000 uh, of mortgage loan amount you can get support from. Uh, this will be the highest and most inclusive income eligibility of any of Florida's housing's down payment assistance programs that we've ever had in this state. Apart from this $100 million program, DeSantis says he'll also approve a total of $363 million for affordable and workforce housing in this year's budget. That would be the highest total in 15 years. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Some tragic news in New York City. A banker was shot dead during a subway ride from his home in Brooklyn on his way to brunch in the city. Some are calling this a senseless tragedy. NTD's Phil Zoe has the story. It was right here on this platform where the killer escaped right after shooting a Goldman Sachs banker in the chest after getting off a Q train headed towards Manhattan. Over the weekend, Goldman Sachs worker Daniel Enriquez was on his way to brunch when he was reportedly approached by a stranger on the Q train, shot in the chest and later pronounced dead at the hospital. According to authorities, the suspect was pacing back and forth on the train while it was going over the Manhattan Bridge before he shot the 48-year-old victim. The victim's sister told the New York Post there was no interaction with the murderer at all. We are devastated by this senseless tragedy, said the CEO of Goldman Sachs. This comes after 10 people were shot in a horrific incident last month at a Brooklyn subway station. The victim has worked at Goldman Sachs for nearly a decade. Before that, he was working at Morgan Stanley. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. Coming up, a man in California rescued from a cliff wall. A law enforcement helicopter caught the process on camera. And in the NBA, the crucial game four tonight as both teams are dealing with injuries. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down which stars are likely to play. That and more when we come back. A law enforcement helicopter rescued a man stranded on a cliff wall south of San Francisco. It's not yet clear how the man got there, but the rescue was all caught on camera. NTD's Eileen Ang reports. A California Highway Patrol helicopter rescued a man stuck on a steep cliff at Muscle Rock in Daly City last Thursday. A local fisherman spotted him clinging on about halfway down a 500-foot cliff and called the Daly City Fire Department. 
Rescuers on the ground weren't able to locate him due to his location, so the CHP helicopter flew in. The pilot hovered at 100 feet while a rescuer hoisted down another rescuer to the man. Unfortunately for this call, we were kind of battling some strong winds, about 30 to 40 knots, so we knew that was going to be a factor. Um, but my team did a really good job in kind of positioning me to where the, uh, the victim was. They put the man in a harness and moved to a nearby landing zone. There, he was transferred to medical personnel. CHP helicopters are fully equipped for advanced life support transports and always have a paramedic on board. The man was taken to a hospital with some scrapes and bruises. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. An official in the D California Democratic Party resigned from her positions over the weekend. Her resignation comes after revelations that the FBI previously arrested her on bribery charges. We hear more from NTD's Daniel Hall. A multi-year FBI investigation in Anaheim is gradually revealing a network of individuals suspected of corruption. Malahat Rafi'i, the secretary of the California Democratic Party, resigned from her position on Sunday. She wrote on Twitter that she never attempted to improperly influence any elected official and the work she undertook to root out corruption was in the best interest of the people of this state. A criminal complaint in May alleges that a cooperating witness with the FBI was involved in planning bribery schemes in Irvine and Anaheim. Rafi'i confirmed she was the cooperating witness. In 2019, Rafi'i was arrested by the FBI on suspicion of bribery. Democratic Party leadership, including the California Democratic Progressive Caucus, called for her resignation. The investigation led to the arrest of Todd Ament, former head of the Anaheim Chamber of Commerce. The FBI is still investigating Anaheim Mayor Harry Sadu on suspicion of corruption. But the Bureau has not yet named a political consultant who is part of the described cabal of people influencing politics in the city. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. The stock market is down considerably this year, so what should you do if you're hoping to retire soon and your savings are invested in stocks? We asked experts for their advice. NTD's Fake Quarter has more. Stocks are currently falling, but over time they recover and generally move upwards. But what about investors who want to retire very soon? At this point, I wouldn't do anything. Michael Bussler is a finance professor at Stockton University. Bussler sees a recession coming, and he says people in the market should wait that out. It may have a little ways to, uh, to go. Once the economy rights itself, and I think that may be at least a year away. Between 1950 and 2018, the S&P 500 dropped 11 times. In seven of those 11, recovery took only one year. Notable exceptions include the 1969 bear market, the 1973 market crash, the dot-com bubble, and the 2008 financial crisis. I would just say have clarity in knowing what you own in that portfolio and make sure you stick to your process. Mark Pearson is the founder of Nepsis, a financial services firm. Pearson says it's a good idea to adjust your portfolio during periods of uncertainty and that it should be allocated in a way to take you into retirement. The IRS allows penalty-free withdrawals from 401ks at age 59 and a half and requires withdrawals after age 72. None of the moves that need to be made in this marketplace have to be all or none. Don Kaufman is the co-founder of TheoTrade, an online financial education service. Kaufman says even even though the market is down, it's still pretty high up over the three years. At the very minimum, look to take off one third or even half the total position. The risk at this point is just, it's simply, it's more serious than at any other point in time since that financial crisis. Another expert who's a bit closer to the issue believes it should be all. Baby boomers might very well not have enough time left in their life to recover. Ron Sears is the co-host of the Baby Boomer Investing Show. Sears says retiring boomers should withdraw their money from the stock market now. If you're going to lose money, you'd rather do it when you're, you're about to die rather than when you're about to retire. Bay Quarter, NTD News. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Justin Thomas's win in a playoff yesterday at the PGA Championship matched the biggest comeback in the history of the major. It also turned a somewhat uneventful round into a must-see event. Thomas shot a final round 67, the best of the day, but missed a 15-foot putt for birdie on 18 that could have cost him a chance at a playoff.
but rookie Mito Pereira, who led all day, hit his tee shot on 18 into a creek and ended up with a double bogey that pushed him into a heartbreaking third place finish. Thomas then outlasted Will Zalatoris in a three-hole playoff to win his second PGA Championship. While Thomas was making his way up the leaderboard, Tiger Woods was nowhere to be found. The 15-time major champion withdrew after shooting a 9-over-79 Saturday while visibly limping at times. Woods admitted he was sore afterwards and his performance led many to wonder whether he'll be at the U.S. Open next month. The 46-year-old nearly lost his leg in a car accident in February of 2021. This marked just his second tour event since returning. In the NBA tonight, the Celtics host the Heat looking to tie the series up at two games apiece. These two played a memorable game Saturday as Boston rallied from a 26-point deficit to cut the lead to one with just two and a half minutes left and Miami without injured stars Jimmy Butler and Tyler Hero. The Heat held on though thanks largely to 19 steals but have a number of players listed as questionable for tonight including Butler, Hero, Kyle Lowry and P.J. Tucker. Boston meanwhile got 40 points from Jalen Brown in the loss but saw both Jason Tatum and Marcus Smart exit with injuries only to re-enter. While Tatum is listed as probable for tonight, Smart is questionable to play. And on the ice tonight, a pair of Game 4s. First, Florida looks to avoid getting swept by Tampa Bay. Should the two-time defending champions advance, they would become just the fourth team to win 10 straight playoff series. On the flip side, only four NHL teams have ever come back from a 3-0 deficit to win a series. In the nightcap, St. Louis hosts Colorado, looking to tie the series up. The Blues will be starting backup goalie Vili Husso after Jordan Bennington suffered a lower body injury during Game 3. Colorado, meanwhile, will be without defenseman Samuel Girard, who suffered a broken sternum in Saturday's win. In tennis, four-time Grand Slam champion Naomi Osaka lost in the first round of the French Open Monday. Afterwards, she questioned whether she will play the next major this summer's Wimbledon, since no points will be awarded for doing so. The WTA and ATP Tours announced last week they will not award players points based on their finish at the All England Club in response to Wimbledon's decision to bar players from Russia and Belarus. The Tours had previously criticized the decision, but have little jurisdiction in how the four majors operate. That's all for your sports today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up is the U.S. sending special forces into Kyiv. The Pentagon today responds to such reports and updates the number of troops currently in Europe. Plus, new international aid for Ukraine. And Rwanda says it expects the first asylum seekers from the U.K. by the end of May. We'll take a look at some of the hostels that are being adapted to house the migrants. That and more when we return. every country communism gains power, authoritarianism and death followed in its wake. Communism promises a world without suffering, and yet, in its execution, does the exact opposite. Following Lenin's death, Stalin's 29-year reign killed an estimated 60 to 66 million people. More famines and purges would occur. The very peasants that communism was supposed to benefit instead starved to death under its rule. The party dictates what is right and wrong. Mao ended up killing between 50 million and 70 million people. As an investigative journalist, I want to understand why. Top U.S. General Mark Milley has a message for the next generation of military leaders. He spoke Saturday to graduating cadets at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. There, he challenged the graduates to prepare America's military to fight future wars in a world that he says is becoming more unstable. In an address to West Point graduating cadets, General Mark Milley cautioned about looming threats from Russia and China. We are facing right now two global powers. 
China, and Russia, each with significant military capabilities, and both who fully intend to change the current rules-based order. As chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, he warned of potential conflicts between great powers worldwide. He cited Russia's aggression in Ukraine and tensions in Asia and the Middle East. And a rapidly rising China as a great power with a revisionist foreign policy, backed up with an increasing capable military. Also in Asia, we are faced with a rogue North Korea that is rapidly increasing their missiles and deliverable nuclear weapons. In the Middle East and parts of Africa, we continue to see instability from terrorism in many places. According to a threat assessment report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Chinese Communist regime has been building hundreds of new intercontinental ballistic missile silos. It's also developing space capabilities that target U.S. and allied satellites. Milley told the graduating class that technology will transform the nature of warfare. You'll be fighting with robotic tanks and ships and airplanes. We've witnessed a revolution in lethality and precision munitions. What was once the exclusive province of the United States military is now available to most nation states with the money and will to acquire them. According to Milley, artificial intelligence is driving the most profound changes in human history. And he says the CCP has taken advantage of this shift by including AI in its strategic development goals. The Congressional Research Service released a report in April on emerging military technologies. The document says Beijing is boosting the use of artificial intelligence in a variety of ways, including cyber operations and autonomous military vehicles. Milley urged the young cadets to prepare for a future that differs greatly from the past. The Pentagon today responds to reports that it's sending special forces into Kyiv. Plus, more international aid is heading to Ukraine. NTD's Iris Tao has more. 20 countries are offering new military aid to Ukraine. Everyone here understands the stakes of this war, and they stretch far beyond Europe. The Monday announcement by the Pentagon follows a virtual meeting of the Ukrainian Defense Contact Group, where almost 50 countries discussed aiding Ukraine's military. Many countries are donating critically needed artillery ammunition, coastal defense systems, and tanks and other armored vehicles. Mark Milley, the top U.S. military general, said the U.S. now has over 100,000 troops in Europe, an increase from nearly 80,000 last fall. The announcement comes amid reports that Pentagon is considering sending special forces into Kyiv to guard the newly reopened embassy there. But Milley said the proposal hasn't been discussed by higher levels. At the end of the day, any reintroduction of uh, U.S. forces into Ukraine would require a presidential decision. So uh, we're a ways away from anything like that. The Pentagon had also reiterated that while the U.S. is doing its best to support Ukraine, it's not the United States fight. It's their fight. It's their country. I want to make sure that uh, that they have the say so in terms of, you know, what what end state looks like. Austin also walked back Biden's recent comment that the U.S. would defend Taiwan militarily if China invaded. As the president said, uh, our one, uh, one China policy has not changed. The Ukrainian Defense Contact Group is set to meet again in June during the NATO Defense Ministers Conference in Brussels. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. The Russian soldier charged for killing an unarmed civilian in Ukraine has been jailed for life in the first war crimes trial since the invasion. Kyiv reveals that nearly 90 soldiers at a barracks were killed last week, its worst military losses in a single attack. President Zelensky calls for full sanctions against Moscow. NTD's Eddie Aitken has more. A Ukrainian court sentenced a Russian soldier to life in prison on Monday for killing a 62-year-old unarmed civilian in the first war crimes trial arising from Russia's invasion. Given the circumstances, the court's verdict is Vadim Shishmarin, born on October 17, 2000, is found guilty in committing a crime according to the second sentence, 438, of the Ukrainian Criminal Codex. He's assigned a life sentence. Vadim Shishimarin, a 21-year-old tank commander, had pleaded guilty to killing the civilian in a northeastern Ukrainian village on February the 28th, 
after being ordered to shoot him. The prosecutor in the trial said the defendant's rights were being respected in full compliance of criminal law throughout the case and the speed of the judicial proceedings did not impede their impartiality or standards. Such crimes should be investigated by the courts and the pretrial investigation bodies with quality, transparency and in accordance with the requirements of the arbitration procedure code. And the courts continue to consider cases quickly because it is essential for society, it is important for Ukraine, including at the international level. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told the World Economic Forum that 87 people had been killed last week when Russian forces struck a barracks housing troops at a training base in the north. This was the worst military loss from a single attack of the Ukraine war. Zelensky called for a full range of sanctions package against Russia. Do not wait for the fatal shots. Do not wait for Russia using their special weapons, either chemical, biological, or, God forbid, nuclear. Do not give the aggressor the impression that the world would not resist enough. Protect the freedom and the regular peaceful order in the world with the maximum effort possible. During a panel at the Forum in Davos, Switzerland, chief of the UN's World Food Programme said failure to open the ports in Ukraine was a declaration of war on global food security. If we can get the ports open, it doesn't solve the problem, but it begins to create stability of a volatile food market right now, combined with all these other issues that we're facing. On Monday, Russia renewed its airstrike on Ukraine's second biggest city, Kharkiv. A military engineer said the city center was shelled with cluster bombs. A witness said she heard at least five sounds of explosions in the morning. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. According to analysis of British government data by PA News Agency, over 9,000 migrants have reached the UK after navigating busy shipping lanes from France in small boats since the start of the year. Last week, nearly 700 people arrived in five days, and British Ministry of Defence figures show over 200 made the crossing on Sunday. More people arrived in Dover on Monday morning, including women and young children. It comes as the UN's refugee agency reiterated concerns over the government's plan to deport migrants to Rwanda. British Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab said the numbers being sent to the East African nation is more likely to be in the hundreds each year. And now a we'll look at some of the hostels in Rwanda that will receive those that arrive to the UK seeking asylum. A Rwandan government official has said the first 50 asylum seekers sent from the UK could arrive by the end of May. Here's more. Rwanda expects its first 50 asylum seekers transferred from Britain by the end of May, a government spokesperson has said. Rwandan officials last week took journalists on a tour of hostels that are being adapted to house the migrants. Deputy government spokesperson Alain Mukururinda. They will not be locked up. They will be in the sites you have visited. They will be able to leave and enter. At some point, once their status has been fixed, they will have to go and live with other Rwandans. But they will be free. They will not be prisoners. Last year, more than 28,000 migrants and refugees made the crossing from mainland Europe to Britain on small boats. The UK's plan to send asylum seekers to the East African country aims to disrupt the business model of people smuggling gangs. But concerns have been raised about Rwanda's human rights record, which the British government itself noted last year. Mukurarinda said a solution had to be found to a problem that takes people's lives as they cross the desert or the Mediterranean Sea. And then we have the experience of welcoming refugees. And we Rwandans have also experienced this situation of being a refugee. So if there is a way to solve this problem by saving lives, I don't think Rwanda could not accept. The British government said in a statement that it has started to notify those who are likely to be relocated with their first flights expected to take place in the coming months. Still to come, new business ideas could come from many places, even a bad-tasting beer. We hear from one man who set a whole new standard after this short break. Many businesses were born out of the need to solve an important problem for customers. 
One man in Chicago created an entire industry standard after having some bad tasting beer. Here's the story. According to Gallup's 2021 study, beer is the most popular alcoholic drink in the U.S. The beer industry offers choices of more than 100 styles and thousands of brands. Proper handling and servicing practices are key to serving fresh and great tasting beers to consumers. I was involved in the, in the beer business and representing beer uh, at a national level. Uh, and I was going into places all over the country that were serving uh, beer and didn't know what they were doing. And they couldn't tell you about the beer and they were handling the beer in, in ways that damaged the beer and, and made it unpleasant to drink. Out of frustration, Ray Daniels founded the Cicerone Certification Program in Chicago 14 years ago. The program educates and certifies beer professionals in the sale and service of beer to consumers on four levels. The first level is very basic for uh, bartenders, waitstaff, uh, retail uh, clerks, and it's called Certified Beer Server. If uh, people are more involved in beer, if they're buying beer, selling beer, um, uh, doing more uh, involved jobs directly with beer, there's additional levels that they can pursue. One of the important elements of the program is the proper maintenance of the draft equipment. This is a faucet. If you don't clean it for months and months, then it's going to be unpleasant inside. For a certified Cicerone, they need to know how to take this apart. They need to be able to identify all the different parts and pieces and tell us what they do. And there's many uh, cases where bars have neglected uh, cleaning their uh, draft equipment and um, uh, they begin to clean it properly and over time you see the sales uh, begin to increase because the beer tastes better. At the fourth and the highest level of the Cicerone certification, Master Cicerone, more than equipment knowledge is needed. It requires an exceptional understanding of beer, from brewing, ingredients, and flavors to pairing. You also need to have that sort of a professional relationship with chefs to be able to talk about food and the flavors in, and processes of, of cooking and how that uh, might pair with, with beer and what the flavors of beer have to offer uh, on the food side. Daniels emphasized that the Cicerone certification is nothing like the sommelier certification for wine. Since 2007, Cicerone certification has become the industry standard for beer sales and serving. 140,000 people worldwide have been certified as Cicerone servers, while only 20 have been crowned Master Cicerones. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.